You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I read the Bible, talk about it, discuss it, and uh, see what all we can figure out. <laughs> Try to make sense it of it. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Right now, I'm not making sense of much of anything. I am still exhausted from being sick. Uh, so, I don't know. Everything points to it being COVID, so... Uh, Ugh. Yeah, it... Uh, you know, it, it wasn't, I was never in any danger, but I did, you know, as I mentioned in the last couple episodes, uh, I spent some days on the couch just laying there feeling miserable, uh, you know, fever and cough and runny nose. Mm-hmm. So my throat is still a little bit sore, but apparently, you know, according to, according to the doctor, I'm in the clear. Um, but in the meantime, we did. Uh, to explain the hole in our uh, our recording <laughs> schedule, that was not due to illness. I actually, me and uh, me and Mickey, we went to Hawaii with some friends. We had an opportunity to stay. They had an opportunity with a, a free lodging, so we didn't know how and often we were. We didn't know how often we were going to get the opportunity to get free lodging in Hawaii. So uh, we thought we should probably jump on that. And this was after you were past any chance of being contagious. So let's yeah, point yeah. that out. Yeah, this was after we. D- I did not go while I was contagious. We did check with the doctor. Um, they said we were right. in the clear. Um, so unless and le- they're like, unless it's one of those fluke things, you should be fine. Uh, so we and we, I've I've been around a lot of coworkers. Um, my girls went to your house. No right. one's got it. So we should be. We should be good. Um, and thank you for that, for watching the girls during that. But that's why we had the hole in the schedule. Mickey and I went to Hawaii. Uh, it, was, it was fantastic. Uh, we got to go snorkeling, got to see a sea turtle, uh, got to see lots of little tropical fish, uh, got to eat some tropical fish. Uh, you know, best of both Which worlds. Which is more important. Yeah, eating. No. Uh, but- well, it, 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 was, it was really amazing. And, and, and Hawaii is one of those unique places where you can be on the beach and you can drive an hour and a half and be in 40 degree weather on top of a volcano. Um, right. It's, it's a really weird place. It was <laughs> a lot of fun, but we, we didn't do a ton of touristy things. We just kind of mainly went to some beaches and, and napped a lot. <laughs> Well, all I did was feed your kids sugar and let them run wild, so they'd be lots of fun for you when you came home. So they're actually, they're actually pretty good. Um, they're 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 really good at knowing like the venue, you know, like the right. They know how to behave at school. They know how they behave at Aunt Emmy's. They know how they behave at home. They're they're uh, they're pretty good kids. Yeah, they would get up in the morning, run straight to the freezer, grab a popsicle, shove four dum dums in their mouth at a time, and they they had a blast. And so. And yeah, I just made sure they didn't yeah, so. you know, do any irreparable damage. That was kind of what I did. <laughs> we, we make sure that in yeah, our house, yeah, the, the, yeah, the main thing loose. is don't, don't make yourself sick. Do what? 
I said the rules are real loose around here, so they get to oh, just okay. run. Sorry, you yeah. cut out for just. Well, Isabel will tell you that the rules at my house, as long as you're not hurting yourself or anyone else, you can do it. So that's right. kind of right. Yeah. But speaking of gaps in the schedule, um, you know, we're we're trying really hard to make sure that we're staying up on our recording and doing things ahead. But uh, I have gotten some questions from some of the listeners who are aware of our mother's situation. Our mother has Parkinson's and she's hit another point in her um with this disease, it's a decline. She's having problems with mobility. And so sometimes that means my weeks are really, really crazy. So I'm going to do my best to stay on top of keeping the notes drawn up and being able to record. But if there is a break in the schedule going forward, it's probably because I'm dealing with that. And so don't, you know, we, we want to be here, but when you've got situations where a loved one's health is at stake, you kind of have to sometimes put things on the back burner. So, you know, if y'all guys want to pray for us during this time, because it's, it's been pretty intense over the last mm, three or four weeks and particularly the last Mm -hmm. two weeks. So, and it's probably not going to get better. Excuse the dogs. (laughs) So yeah, we are outside again. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I'm sure that most of our audience out there, um, hopefully is going to be gracious with us on that because you know, we are, uh, we, we do think it's important to take care of family. Mm-hmm. And uh, so if, if we do have some gaps, thank you for your patience. We're going to try to keep that to a minimum. Uh, if we do wind up uh, having to take an extended break, we probably will uh, put the Patreon account into suspension uh, just so you're not getting charged for a show that's not happening. Right. Um, so anyway, um, that being said, we do have uh, a general format. Uh, usually about this time we're talking about the Bible, uh, but we just, yeah. I think that, but I think that kind of concludes all of our like kind of housekeeping, <laughs> housekeeping things uh, and, and, and keeping everyone informed of what's going on and, and kind of what to expect. So hopefully again, just be patient with us. We have no idea what the future holds any more than you do, uh, which we've tried to, we tried to record ahead so that we wouldn't have a gap when I went on vacation, but there were some other personal family things and health issues and, and things of that nature that, you know, like me being sick, we we were thought about trying to get three episodes in, but I just I did not have it in me to get a third episode <laughs> in that weekend before we left. So uh, hopefully everyone can understand that, and we will. Uh, I guess we'll get onto the Bible now, huh? <laughs> sure, why not? You know, let's get there. Yeah, so we're still in First Kings. We're in chapter two. Uh, I had to go back and review my notes because it's been a while. Uh, and this is these were uh, David's final words to Solomon. And he is giving Solomon the instructions of what to do as he sets up in the kingdom, what he should do when he takes the throne to ensure that he has a good, successful reign. And these are some really harsh words from David. And we're going to be moving forward seeing how Solomon enacts them. And I think there's some really cool things that we don't often hear about when we're talking about David, about Solomon, about Bathsheba. So I I'm was really excited to prepare this, and I'm, I, I hope everyone else is going to get as much out of it as I did. But we're going to pick up in verse 7. That's where we left off our last episode. And verse 7 says, this is David again talking. He says, but deal loyally, loyally with the sons of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. Now, this 
David's referring back to the events of 2 Samuel 17, 27 through 29. And Barzillai heard that David was on the run from Absalom. He had this group of people with him. And Barzillai comes out with food and drink and beds and animals. I mean, he makes sure that the travelers are going to be nourished. They can sustain this journey. And he, he really provides for David in a very desperate time of need. And then in 2 Samuel 19, 31 through 40, when David's returning to Jerusalem after Absalom has been defeated, he returns and escorts David back into the city. Now, at this point, David had offered to bring Barzillai into his, um, into his royal courts and to actually be a part of the, the uh, what am I trying to say, the meals and, and showing Barzillai that honor. But Barzillai said, hey, look, I'm an old man. I just want to go home. I want to be buried with my, with my fathers and basically declines the invitation, but offers to give his son instead. And so it seems that David did fulfill this promise. He took Barzillai's son into his home, and now Solomon is expected to continue this tradition. And so, um, you know, these stories to, to Solomon or these instructions to, to Solomon are basically, you know, you need to keep your promises of what's, uh, what I have made as king in the past. And you need to do it not just for this one person, but for the family. This needs to be an ongoing thing. And you need to keep the promises, not just because I made this covenant with Barzillai's family. You need to keep this covenant because it's advantageous for you as a king. If you remember when we talked about Barzillai in 2 Samuel, we talked about the possibility that he, was, he made arms, that he made weapons. And so as a king, one of the things you want to do is you want to make sure that you have um, the access to the weapons that his family made. But you also want to make sure that those weapons didn't go to an enemy. So it's a very smart thing to maintain this relationship, not just with Barzillai, but also his whole family, who's going to continue in the family trade, presumably, because this is typically what, what happened. So here's this admonition to Solomon. Hey, be loyal. Do something positive. And it's kind of sa sandwiched between these instructions to you know, take out Joab and Shimei. And so it's not all bad, David's final words. Some of them are kind of positive. But in this moment, um, you know, in this whole speech, a lot of people tend to focus on the fact that David's like, you've got to do something about Joab and you've got to do something about Shimei. So we're going to go on to verse 8. And it says, And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went out to Manhattan. And then he went down to meet me in the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. So Shimei first appears very close to when Barzillai first appears. This is Second uh, Samuel 16, 5 through 14. And he came out and he's cursing David and he's symbolically stoning David by flinging stones at the king. And there's supposedly, this is supposedly this is for crimes against the house of Saul. He actually said, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man or you said Belial, remember we talked about how that's the word for, for worthless. Mm -hmm. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, and in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is upon you, for you are a man of blood. So this is what Shimei said to the king. Now, normally the first response, if, you, if a king hears this, is to kill the person saying it. 
There's mm-hmm. not going to be a lot of grace in this moment. But David did something very odd. He did not silence him. Uh, when uh, Abishai, Joab's brother, said, hey, you know, let's take him out. We need to kill him for this affront. Then basically David said, you know, no, I, this is God's mercy. You know, God will give me justice. God will take care of this if this is true. Because one of the problems that David was facing is not everyone thought David should be king. Uh, they thought that David had actually killed Saul. David had or had him killed and killed Jonathan and had Ishbosheth killed in order to take the throne, which we know from scripture that's not the case. But you can only imagine how the perceptions were that David would have done this in order to achieve his goal to become king. And so by letting Shimei live, by not silencing him, David actually is presenting this front of, I'm not afraid of these accusations because they're baseless. And so he allows Shimei to live. And when Shimei um, sees David returning from Jerusalem after Absalom has been defeated, Evidently, he took that as a sign that his accusations were not true, and he asked David not to remember or take his words to heart. And so David once again reaffirms um, his promise not to to kill Shimei by the sword. And Shimei pledges his allegiance to David for on behalf of the house of Joseph. And the reason why he uses this uh, euphemism it, it's to convey not just Benjamin but also Ephraim and Manasseh were included within the house of Joseph. So all of these tribes together made that particular little, little subset of the nation. And to allow Shimei to return, convey to the rest of the Benjaminites, hey, you're still welcome. We still want you to be a part of the kingdom. We're not going to take you out. Because remember, Benjamin's got this really precarious position within the nation, and it still hasn't fully recovered from the time at the end of, of Judges where, the, the, where that particular tribe was almost completely wiped out. So there's, there's a lot of tension between Benjamin and the rest of the nation as far as should they continue to exist, how, you know, how much protection do they get. And there's this kind of this ambivalence towards the tribe because on one hand they did this terrible thing by condoning and defending the, the men who raped the concubine of Gibeah the, and from the story of the Levite and the concubine. On the other hand, they are our brothers, and we can't allow them to perish. And all of this is still at play. This hasn't been that long ago in history. And I think we need to remember that because too often we read these stories as if they're so far removed from each other that they have no impact or bearing, when the truth is they absolutely do impact each other. And we've talked about it before. Judges should be read as part of the first Samuel narrative, that there shouldn't be a break there, that Ruth really, really kind of distracts us from the fact that these, these stories from Judges and Samuel do fit together. So verse nine, now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, still talking about Shimei, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. You shall bring down his gray head. You shall bring his gray head down to, down with blood to Sheol. So David's found a loophole. You know, he can't kill Shimei, but Solomon can. And he really can't give like a direct command, hey, you need to take him out because of this. You've got to figure out a way to do it that's not directly connected to those events that I promised to spare him for. 
and you know you can kind of hear that you're smart you can figure this out and um david silver the one of the rabbis at drisha he's like this is like the scene from the godfather where it's like you know i the godfather tells his successor you can take out this guy without saying you can take out this guy or you need to take him out and so there's there's a little bit of um subterfuge going on here and david saying setting solomon up to say hey this is what you need to do you need to get this taken care of and david evidently had confidence in Solomon's abilities to navigate these kind of murky political waters. And this is even before we have chapter three, where we just hear all about Solomon's wisdom. His wisdom has not really been established within the narrative yet. And this is the first time we really have this reference that, hey, Solomon is a wise man and Solomon's wisdom is supposed to be used for, you know, good politics. And that's exactly what's happening here. So, um, figure out where I am in my notes. It's been a long, a long day already. But um, the uh, the thing about Shimmy, one of the reasons why he needs to be silenced or he needs to be taken care of, is he was David's biggest. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he was the loudest voice protesting David's reign. I mean, this is the only guy who who was willing to actually confront David head on and say, "You did something awful. You killed Saul's house." And mm-hmm. so, by taking taking care of him, quote unquote, basically Solomon would be sending a message that support for Saul's house is no longer tolerated. Saul is not one of the kings. He's not going to be, you know, his supporters are not going to have any hope of ever reestablishing Saul's throne. You're either on the side of David or you're not part of the nation now. So you need to to realize there's consequences for treasonous talks. And that includes supporting the house of Saul. And I think that, you know, we think, well, you know, this is David's son. David's been on the throne. Surely David has solidified the nation and everything's going to be great. If we think that way, we're letting our own bias influence how we're reading the story because we have seen so much evidence. You know, Absalom was able to displace David from Jerusalem. Shiva threw a, had a revolt. This is, he does not have a secure hold on the nation yet. And so Solomon is really going to have to solidify his hold because not only does he have this mark against him because he's David's son and not from the house of Saul, he also has this brother who tried to displace him. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> Solomon has a number of issues that he's going to have to face in order to make sure that people understand he is the rightful heir. So, and this is what David's trying to prepare Solomon for. He's trying to make sure Solomon knows how to take the reins and how to be a good leader. And so verse 10 David um, slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Now, notice the contrast. When David was talking about Joab and Shimei and their deaths, he's talking about them going down to Sheol. David's talking about sleeping with, uh, David is described as going to be with his fathers, sleeping with his fathers. That's the difference that we talked about a few weeks ago about how the righteous, when they die, that it's this idea of being reunited with their loved ones and family. Whereas those who were not righteous were just sent to Sheol. And so this contrast is made very vividly here. It's a great example of how that works. So you can go back and review that episode. I won't go any deeper into that. 
And uh, this is really heightened even further when we get to talking about Joab's actual death because he's buried in the wilderness. He's not buried with his fathers uh, where David is buried in the city of David. And we don't know at this point if the city of David is Bethlehem. I mean, that's how we tend to think of it. Or in this instance, if they're talking about a special section of Jerusalem, there's some debate there. I don't think it really matters. I think the point is David is being buried in a place of honor, not some, you know, random place out in the wilderness. So verse 11, and the time David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 30 years in Jerusalem. Now, 2 Samuel 5.4 actually said that David reigned in Hebron for seven and a half years. So we have a little discrepancy with the numbers. And, but I think this is a good time to remember that biblical numbers, they are symbolic. So they give you an idea, they give you kind of an estimate of either the amount of time or the number of people, but they aren't supposed to be read literally. And the writers will often take a number and round it up or down to the closest number that gives you some real impact. Mm-hmm. So in 40, I mean, that, that number is loaded. Anyone who knows the least bit about their Bible, they know 40 is a loaded number. I mean, we've got 40 years in the, in the wilderness. We have Jesus fasting for 40 days. It rained for 40 night, days a night with the ark. And so often this number is connected to trials and tribulation. But if you push it further, it's not just trials and tribulation. It, it really is about transition. It, it's about leadership. It's a change in leadership. Because if you think about it, the, um, the ark, it, this is when God reestablishes or reaffirms that he's the one who reigns over the earth, not these sons of God who had been running wild and doing horrible things at this point in time. Uh, when we're talking about... Um, Sinai, we're talking about taking this group of slaves who just came out of Egypt and didn't have any other leader except for Pharaoh and becoming the nation of God. Mm-hmm. And so God becomes their leader. Jesus comes to establish his kingdom on this earth. And so David's time as king really was a time of transformation. It was a continuation of this process that began back in Genesis. And particularly in Exodus, where we do have those group of slaves who, who they are transformed from slaves into tribes and into a nation. And then Saul, who takes this kind of confederacy of tribes and really brings them in, into a united forefront of, of a, a, a defined nation, if you will, where David takes it one step further and takes it to a dynastic kingdom with the placing Solomon, his son, on the throne. So there is this idea of transition, transformation, and the progression that comes out of these, time, these 40-day, 40-year periods throughout the Bible. It, it's not just this one place. So by placing the emphasis on the number 40, the writer really is trying to connect you back to these previous events. And then later, the New Testament writers will actually be using this number with Jesus to point you back to David. And so I think we need to remember that what we find from the number 40 is not gloom and doom, like I've often heard it taught, but actually hope, because now God's chosen leaders are taking command. And it's not the leaders who would try to usurp authority before this. Hmm. So 
Verse 12. So Solomon sat on the throne of David and his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Um, his kingdom in this verse is ambiguous. It can refer to David's kingdom or Solomon's kingdom, I mean, whose kingdom is being firmly established. Um, I think both is the right answer because David doesn't truly become king until the son takes the throne. Before that, he's just another judge or warlord. He's not really a king until he has a son to pass the kingdom on to. And Solomon, of course, he doesn't become king until he takes the throne and establishes his own reign. So this is actually really useful for Christian theology because it's not a son over and against the father taking the, the position of power. It's a son receiving a position of power from the father. And so this puts a great contrast between Solomon and Absalom and so Solomon and Adonia. So you have the, this, this beautiful imagery of the two of them having to succeed together in order to establish the kingdom. And of course, we see that played out with the father and son of God. So it's not, it's not something that is a foreign concept when we get to the New Testament. This is actually part of the tradition and the history of Israel, giving these little glimmers that point us to how reality should play out. And I, I, I love these little, these little insights that you begin to get in these Testament and Old Testament or Hebrew scripture stories, because they do teach us that God has been painting this picture since the beginning of time, mm -hmm. that nobody should be taken by surprise when Jesus steps onto the scene and says, this is how it works, because this is the way it's always worked. Right. So right. something I want to point out too, um, and this is probably something you did not plan on, but I know we're talking about uh, once we get done with Kings, uh, possibly moving on to the Gospels. And um, one of the things that, you know, we start at the Gospels and we go in the order they are in the in the Bible. We're going to start with Matthew, which starts with a long genealogy. <laughs> and one of the things that, you know, as you were going through the list of people that David was talking about, you went back and you talked about the things they did. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I hate reading Matthew because it's just a long list of names. Well, one of the easiest ways to fix that is whenever you get to a name, don't just read through the list of names when you get to a right. name. Go back and do a study on that person mm -hmm. and then break it up that way and kind of consider that, you know, you're working your way through. But whenever you look at how the, what those stories are and why it's important that they're included in the gospel mm -hmm. message, I mean, it, it really uh, changes the way you look at things. Well, and that's where the writer of Matthew, when he chose those specific people, because it's not a comprehensive genealogy, he, he sifted out the best stories. And, mm -hmm. and put those in. And he put those names in so that the people would remember the stories. And as a good, observant Jewish reader would, <clears throat> excuse me, when they heard those names, they remembered that person's story. So he didn't have to give us the history because he presumed that if you were reading Matthew, you probably already knew your Hebrew scriptures. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, what's happened today is we, as modern Christians, we don't know our stories. We know pieces of stories. We know bits of stories that fit a systemized the theology. We, we don't have the, the full context. And unfortunately, whenever you just rely on systematic theologies, 
what you get are just the verses that support that person's theology. It's not the whole story. And so this is the reason why it's so important that we actually read the entire story to see, does the verse that that person pulled out to support their systematic, is it really supporting their systematic or does it just sound good? Right. Because right. sometimes when you put it in context, it, it, it blows their ideas and their arguments completely out of the water. And so I always advocate, know your Bible before you start jumping into systematics. Mm -hmm. I'm not knocking systematics as far as being useless. I don't think they're as useful as the narratives, but you know, th there is a place for them. So certain ones, certain ones, <laughs> right. Sometimes that place is a round file. But, um, yes. <laughs> Got a yeah. couple of those. Uh, yeah. Well, that's the reason why I still have to get that stamp that says heresy for research purposes only for some of the yeah, books in my library. Some of the books. Yeah. So. Yeah, there, there's a couple of book, books that I have around that I'm like that I read. And I'm like, oh, that was terrible. Uh, the worst part is a couple of those I bought new. Um, but right, the, uh, yeah, and you, <laughs> and you expect them to be good because they're the, by these people who are highly <laughs> lauded and and uh, then you, then you it's read like, through. What did them. I just read? Yeah, it's like why did I who's why did I spend money on that? More importantly, why did the publisher <laughs> spend money putting that together? Um, exactly. The, <laughs> so. There was actually, uh, I, it was so funny because I, I it, this is actually one of my, one of the stories. So I, I was do I was trying to do some research on, on worship and I, I bought this book by a highly acclaimed teacher uh, and I was talking to the pastor at the church I was at at the time and telling him that I read it. And he's like, he's like, well, what'd you think of the book? And, and I said, I was kind of disappointed. And he goes, really? He goes, what, what was what was disappointing? I said, well, the, uh, the author's imagination was limited and his uh, vocabulary was juvenile. And he just kind of, he looked shocked that I would say this about the person, but I, I was just like, there was no, there was almost no creativity. There was, there was nothing new in the book. And, and some of the stuff was actually kind of almost counter biblical, but, uh, that's, yeah. So I'll let you wonder who that is. I'm not going to go firing shots at anybody at the moment. I know. But anyway. Well, I know you know, but I'm the general audience. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had the same experience with another one of his books. So anyway, verse 13. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> then Adonia, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. So Adonia uh, had been sent away. Um, you know, that happened back in First Kings 153. Uh, he, he doesn't approach Solomon directly, which is probably wise when the king sends you out of his courts. And what's interesting is that the way people have tried to explain this, this has been crazy. Some of the stuff I have read is just, just wild because people don't know what to think about the fact that this guy has gone to Bathsheba. Because on one I, hand... I, okay, I may be jumping the gun. Does this kind of remind you of James and John's mother? Like kind of a... Is there you know, I hadn't like put that together, in the backwards, but... backwards, uh, you know, thing going I, on here, but... I hadn't put I that one together, but I see where you, I see where you get that. But, and I'm no. asking the question. I have redone zero research on right, this, so no. don't... Don't go like, oh, yeah, don't go build a systematic <laughs> on that. No, no. Uh, but 
Well, what what causes people problems is okay. Number one, they, there's this there's this idea that women in the Old Testament didn't have any kind of power or authority. Okay, that's a load of bunk. Um, they do. So when people start with that presumption, they're like, "Well, why would he go to Bathsheba? Why why would she have any say?" And so they want to water it down, and they say, "Oh, well, you know, it's because she's Solomon's mom, and since she's mom, he'll listen to her." Which, I mean, that has a certain amount of validity. I, I, I do believe that, you know, moms do have an influence on their children, particularly their sons. But, um, you know, it's at the same time, whenever you want to deny that women have any influence or authority over men, that's kind of a hard thing to kind of shoehorn in there with everything else. So um, another solution that's offered is that Bathsheba is head over the harem. And that all matters pertaining to the the women and the royal courts with the women would have to go through her. Well, right there, you've just given her a lot of authority. Um, but, you know, this is Solomon's harem, not David's harem. So that's kind of, it, it's kind of an eh uh, solution. The third solution is that uh, Adonia believed that she would be unaware of the political ramifications of what he was asking. And so she would be more inclined to give him what he requested. And the problem with that is I don't see Bathsheba as being clueless or naive. I mean, when Nathan went to her and said, hey, if Adonia takes the throne, you and Solomon are in danger. She went in and played her part with David flawlessly. This is not a woman who who has no clue. This is not a woman who's easily duped. And she knew that Adonia posed a threat. She understood this from the get-go. And so I don't think that we can say she was just being used because she was simple. You know, I, I just, I don't get that read from Bathsheba. I could be wrong. But, uh, but I also think it's interesting that when he approaches her, she has to give him permission she she questions, you know, are you here peacefully? And when he says peacefully, then um, he says, I have something to say to you. And she says, speak. She has to give him permission to speak in her presence. I, that's huge. And then um, he says, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all of Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request. To make of you, do not refuse me. She said, speak. Once again, she has to give him permission. And, you know, how often do we, do we miss that? So, you know, he sets it up. Here, I'm the poor victim. Everything was taken from me. I just need a little consolation prize. And, you know, if life was fair, then the kingdom would be mine. But I, I'm not complaining. I just want a little something to kind of ease the bitterness of the situation. Um, you know, he, he's trying to play on her sympathies. I'll give mm -hmm. him that. So verse 17, he says, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. So Adonia makes a very interesting observation here. Solomon will not refuse Bathsheba, knowing full well that his request is tantamount to treason. Now, sure. Abishag is, we, we got to remember, she, she wasn't David's wife. He never had sex with her. A marriage was never consummated. There was no ceremony. She was just a bed warmer. However, her intimate relationship with the king 
really makes her a powerful symbol that that's not diminished any at all. And, you know, Adonia's uh, um, already made one grab for power. And so there's the only reason you can think of him for, for making this request is that he's going to make another grab for power. And that's exactly we're going to find out Solomon sees it that way. And it, but it's very reminiscent of Absalom with the 10 concubines on the roof where he, he makes this big political statement through violence to women. Look, I can take my father's place here so I can take my father's place on the throne. And so we're, we're really being reminded that, Ab, that, sorry, Adonia is basically a more cowardly version of Absalom. Mm -hmm. So, but Bathsheba, I mean, she shows herself as being very shrewd. She doesn't comment on his uh, request. She doesn't attempt to uh, deter him. She says, very well, I'll speak to, for you to the king. Notice there are the words, I will speak for you to the king. Not my son, not your brother, the king. And she's basically saying that he's going to respond as his office and title requires him to respond. So, verse 19, Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonia, and the king rose to meet her and bowed to her. And then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought in for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. He rises. Kings do not rise in the presence of their subjects, even family members. He bows to her. The word here is often used in the connotation of worship. I don't think he's worshiping Bathsheba. It doesn't always mean worship, but that's how profound this honor is that he extends to his mother. Mm -hmm. And he has a seat brought to her. Now, the, the Septuagint has a huge problem with the fact that he would bow to a woman, that he would bow to any woman, even his mother. Um, so it doesn't say that he bows to her. It says that he kisses her. They, they actually change that there because they don't want to diminish his grandeur. But the Masoretic clearly says that he bows. Hmm. Now, notice where he places her. I want to read a quote here from Simon J. DeVries. Uh, he wrote the, um, the word commentary. It says, a common custom throughout the ancient world was to make this a place of honor, that place at the right, and delegated authority. Note, honor and delegated authority. And he goes on, hence to speak of Christ at the right hand of the Father should never be read literally, for it simply means enjoying the position of chief delegated authority. Solomon literally puts his mother in the same position God puts Jesus. Mm -hmm. Let that sink in. <laughs> so, uh, and this is the beginning of an ongoing custom. All of the king's mothers, well, not all, there's a few exceptions, but most of the king's mothers in the divinic mar monarchy are named alongside their sons whenever the son takes the throne. And the queen mother the Giborah, if you, that word sounds familiar, it's because it's the same root as Giborim, the mighty men. The Giborah were the ones who sat next to, next to the king. They would advise the king and they would intercede for the people to the king. This was her position. So this began this tradition that only happened within the Davidic monarchy, not the other monarchies when they split off. Hmm. And I, Right? So. 
This is also where a lot of our teachings about our ideas on Mary, particularly when we start, start talking about Catholic ideas. I mean, we're, we're Protestant, and so we didn't grow up with a, a, any kind of real teaching on Mary. Uh, she was just, you know, somebody who gave birth to a baby. Yay, Mary, go. I mean, it, it, there's, she just not very highly esteemed. Um, she wasn't disrespected, but she was downplayed. Uh, I actually um, listened to a um, podcast this morning with Carmen Imes. Uh, she was a guest on Alabaster Jar, uh, which absolutely fabulous uh, series of podcasts on women in the Bible. Uh, I agree with, I think it was one of the commoners said they're too short. They are too short. They need to be longer. But um, she talked about how sometimes Protestants, we, we want to be so careful not to be Catholic that we downplay Mary too much. But, you know, this has huge implications for how we should view Mary. If this is a foreshadowing or a type uh, of what's going to happen with Jesus, we need to factor this in. This story needs to play a part in how we how we view Mary and and by extension all women, because Adonia did believe that Bathsheba would be a successful intercessor for him, and we do know that like Jesus' very first miracle, the wedding at Canaan, it's Mary who intercedes on behalf of the host, and Jesus does not refuse her. He he listens to her, and so we have that connection. And I don't want to get too deep in, into the theology of Mary, because that is a New Testament topic, but I think we need to acknowledge and recognize that it does begin here. There is a biblical basis. It's not just because she had Jesus. I mean, that's huge. I don't want to sound like I'm dismissing that. But there, there's more to the story than what we might have been taught. And so when we get to the Gospels, we will definitely be looking at some of these. Um, one of the reasons it's that historians think that the queen mother is such an influential figure is particularly Solomon. We see this very easily. There's a multitude of wives. There's so many women who quote unquote could be queen, uh, but there's only one queen mother, <clears throat> sorry, mm -hmm. one mother. So by saying she's going to rule as what we would consider to be the queen position, now there doesn't have to be the infighting in the harem. There doesn't have to be a selection from among the wives. And we find in other historical accounts that that can be a real problem. And so this kind of erases that um, debate. Now, what comes next is really kind of a source of debate, too. This whole section is like scholars don't know what to do with it. And I love it. I, I, I love the fact that they're scratching their heads. And it bothers them so much. Um, verse 19, it says, Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. Now, Bathsheba sets this up using the exact same words that Adonia used to appeal to her. She, she parrots it right back. Now, unlike Bathsheba, Solomon, without even hearing, says, Absolutely, I'll do it. And so people think that maybe she might have been setting him up. Mm, possibly. I mean, if you just kind of go with what's on the page and you don't take into account any of the, the personality traits we've seen before, I sort of say flaws, but the traits we've seen before, the attitudes, the, the wisdom that we've seen in, in Bathsheba herself in navigating these very uh, tricky and life-threatening um, 
events within the king's courts. Yeah, maybe you could get there. But I, I think that she's just being very, very shrewd. Because the reason people want to say that she's setting him up, I don't like. Okay. I'm just going to be honest about that. I don't like them. They say that, number one, she was jealous of Abishag, that she just wanted her gone, didn't want her in her house. She didn't want her anywhere around because Abishag had displaced her. Well, that's not true. David never married her. Yes, she was warming David's bed, but that was what his counselors did. And she, there seemed to be no indication that David had any sexual interest in her at all. Um, others say that she was just completely unaware of the political ramifications. This woman had spent her life staying alive through political intrigue. And that's how she enters the story. You can't tell me she's unaware. She's been part of this, this system that is the royal courts. I, I, I don't buy that she's unaware. I think she's deliberately provoking Solomon by repeating um, Ad- Adonia's words. And I think she, she deliberately chose to mirror his words for the express purpose of demonstrating the intent and how brazen Adonia was with her. And, and I'm going to support that. Let me, let me show you why. So verse 21, she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonia, your brother, as wife. Verse 22, King Solomon answered his mother, and why do you ask for Abishag the Shunammite for Adonia? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is, all, he is my older brother. And on his side are Abathar, the priest, and Joab, the son of Zuria. So she asks, and Solomon tells her that not only is her request offensive, he tells her why. He outlines this larger plot. And he says, okay, here's the advantages my brother already has over me. He's older, and people expect him to, to inherit. Abathar, the priest, who is the head of the, the um, religious center, is with him. Joab, you know, who was David's hero and general for so many years, is already supporting him. So Abishag, it would just be one more piece of window dressing that would add validity to Adonia's claim to the throne. And he seems to be going off at Bathsheba here. But I don't think that's the case, because when you get to verse 23, this is what he says. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God, do so to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonia his life. Notice who he attributes the words to, not Bathsheba, but to Adonia. He knows this is what Adonia has said to her. Mm-hmm. And so he doesn't get onto her for repeating the message. He gets mad that Adonia had the, was brazen enough to actually make the request. And so verse 24, now, therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David, my father, who has made me a house. And as, as he promised, Adonia shall be put to death this day. And so, you know, I think we need to remember that everything that says that's Dumplin, isn't he cute? Everything that says that Bathsheba is unaware that she's some poor little simpleton who's getting played relies on the idea that Solomon would be offended by the fact she said this, but he's not offended uh, with her. And so we've got to remember her history. And I, I think that this was just a brilliant setup on her part. And 
the other thing too, Solomon put her in a place where she was supposed to counsel and advise him. Mm-hmm. A wise man would not put some simple-minded, you know, airheaded woman in that position. That's not what wise people do. So it would not only have to go against what we know of Bathsheba, it would also have to go against what we know of Solomon, what the Bible clearly states of Solomon. And I know I'm kind of harping on this, but I want you to, these are some quotes that uh, Dr. House, who wrote the word, com, uh, sorry, the, uh, oh, one of the commentaries that we're using, I'll, I'll remember the name later. Uh, he quoted these. This is, this is why I, I'm just, I think this is important that we recognize her story. R.N. Wybray writes that she's a good-natured, rather stupid woman who was natural prey to both more passionate and cleverer men. C.F. Keel wrote that the implications of Adonia's request escaped her. J.A. Montgomery claims she had a womanly interest in the love affair. And, of course, we've talked in the past how in the previous events with David and Uriah, she's presented as a seductress. and so. When I, I harp on this, stop and, and ask yourself some questions about the story. When you're taught about Bathsheba, what are you told? Uh, did you know that Solomon seated her in a place of honor and delegated authority? I, he gave her a position of authority in his own kingdom. That's crazy. I, I wasn't taught that in Sunday school. I've never heard that from a pulpit. Um, did we were we taught that the standard of honor and respect that Solomon showed his mother became the pattern for the Davidic monarchy? Do we know that it would become commonplace for the for the women who gave birth to these kings to also be honored alongside the kings? Never heard that from a pulpit. Uh, you know, it's the only thing we know about Bathsheba is that she was bathing on a roof. I think for most of it, that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, she was not bathing on a roof. And the Bible says that she's a Torah observant woman, that she was you know, cleaning up from her ritual impurity. And so I think that Bathsheba's story is really an excellent example of what we do to women in the Bible. We either add to their story like, oh, she's on the roof when she wasn't, or we detract or ignore the parts that don't fit with our, our narrative that we, we have in our head, our, our bias. By ignoring the fact that she was given a position of, of authority. The king himself gave her authority. And so when we use women as a plot device and we stop seeing them as people, people with value who were created in the image of God, we, we miss so much of the story and what's happening in the Bible. And, you know, and we do this. I mean, when we talk about the non-existent, totally fictitious, made-up curse of Eve, we, we, we do this. Mm-hmm. Especially when we forget to celebrate the fact that she is the maternal ancestor of the Messiah. Come on, guys. That's just as much a part, if not more, of her story than the fall. And yet we don't do it. When we, when we act like Deborah is just an indictment against cowardly men. Well, no, she was a celebrated judge and priestess. Why, why do we do this to her? When we don't credit Hannah as being a prophetess. The first one to say the Messiah is coming, and we just make her into a barren woman who wants a kid to to justify her existence. That's wrong. That that's a disservice. Mm-hmm. And or 
Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. can go on. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, a, a really fast way to get blocked on Twitter um, is to uh, ask someone to show you, you know, if they start getting in on this, you know, Curse of Eve or, you know, or Deborah was in there because there weren't any men who could do the job. Um, it, it, fast way to get blocked is to ask, can you show me the verse where the Bible says that? Mm-hmm. Um, show me the verse where it says that Eve was cursed. Show me the verse that says that Deborah was only filling in for, you know, lack of competent men. And mm-hmm. which is funny to me because the Bible is basically full of stories of God using <laughs> incompetent men right. um, to get a job done. So why should that make any difference? I mean, everyone has their flaws. And that's part of the point of the story is that we're not the hero. Right. And um, so, yeah, it's it's just really funny to me how quickly people just get completely bent. It's like, no, just read what the Bible says. Don't follow your tradition. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know mm-hmm. I was an adult before I found out about, before I realized the that, you know, Solomon set up a, th- a throne, basically set up a throne for her as alongside mm-hmm. his own. Yeah. I, I, and people miss this because it's ignored by so many people in authority. And, you know, and when I was reading through this and I was just thinking of this list of women who, whose stories have been, you know, just edited and censored when it comes to the positive things about them. And I, I was thinking also about the compassion we show. I mean, how many times are we told the story of Daniel and the lion's den and all the things that Daniel went through in this royal court in a foreign land serving under a king who did not serve God? And, and we will set him up as a symbol of bravery. We will set him up as someone who withstood incredible odds to defend his faith. And then we act like Esther was just participating in a beauty pageant. Right. And, okay, people need to realize, no, she actually had to go to bed with the king. This guy who wanted to kill her and her family, she was sleeping with the enemy, literally. And yet we will elevate Daniel over Esther every time. Why? And I'm not discounting what Daniel did. I think we need to be in awe of what he did. And I think we need to be inspired by what he did. But we need to stop downplaying what the women endured. And so, you know, we need to be celebrating in equal measure. So um, anyway, if that's probably enough on on that, because I... I I often tell myself I don't want to just be harping on women in the Bible and trying to present kind of quote unquote a feminist ideology. I hate that term. But at the same time, when I read through the Bible and I actually study the passages about women, I'm finding how much was kept kind of hidden in the shadows or just Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, it may have been read, but it was brushed fast so quickly and that we don't pull out, you know, all the significance of it. And so, you know, I kind of feel like when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about, you know, centuries in, of just neglect and, and bad teaching. So anyway, um, verse 25, so King Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Yehudia, and he struck him down and died. So we got two down on Solomon's hit list. And um, this is the last time we hear from, from Bathsheba in, in Samuel or in Kings. Samuel King's one book. Anyway, and so there, I think it's appropriate that we do take time. And then we've got this uh, to look at her and to spend some time thinking about her because we aren't going to get a chance to do it again uh, within the text. But 
this is the first person that Solomon has to deal with. He has to deal with his brother, and he has to deal with him because he has shown himself to be unworthy. If you remember back in the first chapter when Solomon and Adonia had their first little um, conversation, and Adonia was wondering whether or not he was going to die, Solomon says, if you show yourself to be worthy, you will live. Mm -hmm. But it's in this act where Solomon sees through what Adonia is doing, and he sees what Adonia is going to try to, to set, you know, he's trying to set the pieces in play for another power grab that he proves himself to be unworthy. So now he has to be taken out and he has to be taken out not because it's some kind of horrible vengeance, but because this is the way you solidify your hold on the throne, particularly when someone's already actively tried to take it from you. You cannot allow treason especially for a new king to exist within your courts, within your family, because what's going to happen is you're going to have another situation just like Absalom. And that's where this was building to. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you have to be an overly bright or intelligent reader to see this is what Adonia was working his nerve up to become. Absalom was just his role model. And so he was a precursor of what was getting ready to happen. So I think probably a good place to stop right there because now we're going to get next section is going to be on Abathar. And um, there's a lot of stuff with Abathar because we're going to have to go back to, to first and second Samuel and look at who Abathar was and mm -hmm. why is he important and how Abathar, how Solomon dealing with Abathar actually proves himself to be the rightful worthy king who exceeds Saul and actually exceeds David. So um, it's, a, it's an interesting story. And um, okay. yeah, there, there's a well, lot of stuff in here. <laughs> that I'm, oh, I'm, just like, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm just sitting here wondering as you're going through this too. It's like, uh, I'm wondering uh, how far we'd have to look before we found some kind of sermon that said that uh, Adonia only died because Solomon, lis or Solomon listened to... Uh, <laughs> To, I to, guarantee uh, you it's out there. I, yeah. It's just I, I keep hearing all this this these things and I was actually I was listening to there's a podcast um called I think it's called the Genesis Podcast. I think that's mm -hmm. all it's called. And it's um the only uh it's only about twenty minutes per episode. Um they they really chop it up into some some small digestible bits, but they really like dive into Genesis. Mm -hmm. Uh, they they call it the, the True Three Sixteen Project. Okay. Uh, is and uh, yeah, talking about actually looking at what what's applied there. Uh, you know, when because we often talk about the you know, there's the whole bit of the curse, uh, the curse of Eve, and how if you look the curse, the word curse is never applied to the man or the woman. They say cursed right. is the earth because of you, and because of this curse on the earth, um, then there is a uh, there's consequences for each of you. And so I, I find that very, I, I found it very interesting because I, and I can't, I had another thought about that and I, I wish I could remember what it was. Well, I'll, maybe I'll share next time, but I'll it's add very, a little, let's say it's, I was just going to say, it's very irritating to me whenever people want to vilify uh, people because, you know, one of the, one of the things that they were talking about was, you know, because of, God says to Adam, because of what you have done, the earth has been cursed. Not Eve. Um, not 
what Eve did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we really uh, have to look at that because, you know, and that's the other thing. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said things like, well, Eve was off by herself doing another thing and walked out from, the, out from under the covering of her husband. No, it says he was right there, right with, there him, with her. And yeah. he, didn't, he didn't stop her. I mean, think about this. Adam mm-hmm. was willing to sacrifice her to find out what happened when the fruit was eaten. Mm-hmm. God yeah. said, you're going to die. And he's like, nah, well, we'll see if, if this fruit will actually kill a person. I'll let, I'll let her eat it first. I mean, yeah. Think about that. That's terrible. Anyway, what were you going to say? Well, no, I was going to say, no, I was going to say the other thing in God's pronouncement there, Eve is the only named active player in the whole scenario to help bring salvation to the earth. Not Mm -hmm. Adam, not Mm -hmm. the serpent, not the earth, only Eve. Now, think about that for a minute. She's the only one who God says, hey, you get to be a part of this. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. how, how many times we bypass that? And so I, I just, this is what bothers me. It's like, if we're going to, to teach one side of the story, and I'm not saying don't teach that Eve ate of the fruit. Absolutely. That's the truth. That's in the Bible that needs to be taught, mm-hmm. but let's give the whole story. Let's stop picking out the parts that support this narrative. And so often the narrative is it's the woman's fault. The only reason we're in this mess is because Eve had to eat that piece of fruit. How many times have I heard that? You know? If Eve mm-hmm. would have just listened, if Eve, mm, no, and I loved, okay, a little, another plug for Carmen here. Uh, Carmen Iams, Alabaster Jar, one of the episodes this morning, there's two of them I, that I listened to, I can't remember which one. She actually makes the statement that when um, Paul is talking about Eve being deceived, that you know, the problem was Eve didn't get the information firsthand. And so Paul is actually admonishing people to, that women need to be taught and trained so they won't be deceived. And that's what the, the point he's trying to make there. Not that, oh, women are just easily deceived. It's like, no, you keep women from being deceived by actually faithfully teaching them the correct word of God mm-hmm. so that they can stand firm. And I'm, I'm, you know, I paraphrased and I added to but that's kind of the gist of what she was saying. So I, I think it's worthwhile to, to look those episodes up. They're not affiliated with us in any way, but really, really good episodes. They're 23 minutes long, and uh, they're working through various issues and various uh, women within the Bible, and I can't wait to hear the rest. So Yeah, yeah. I'll be, be glad to take a look at those. I'll throw those in my, my list. So anyway, and I'll send you the information on the Genesis podcast because that's been some very good information as well. Anyway, uh, everyone out there, thanks for joining us. Um, if you uh, liked being part of this, come back next week. Um, hit us up on Patreon if you uh, want to support us, where you can get uh, some bonus items for uh, just a small donation. Uh, and then if you don't want to do that, give us a review, give us a like, give us a share. Um, those things help us out more than anything. Mainly, our, our biggest goal is to just get information out there in the hands and minds of believers so that you can know what the Bible actually says, and so you're not falling into any of these stupid traps that people <laughs> set out there that have become so flippin' popular in Christian pop culture. And I'm before you we go off on an, I do need a nap before we go off on another tangent. Um, yeah, we 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 really do. That's that's our goal is to to get the word out. So you know, give us a like, give us a share, give us a review. Those things all help people find us. Um, and uh, more importantly, the biblical information that we are doing our best to represent 
And uh, if you want to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC is the uh, social media handle. You can find us on just about any place. RavenCreekSC.com is the website where you can find sh- uh, show notes to this show and uh, other shows that we've got going on uh, that we host. Um, but other than that, I think that kind of wraps us for the week, and we'll <laughs> see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.